Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. Henry David Thoreau famously said, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. Do you think that's true? Is it really true? See, I don't think that's true. That hasn't been my experience. I mean, I don't feel like I'm leading a life of quiet desperation. In fact, just the opposite. I've been blessed way beyond what I deserve, you know. I pastor the greatest church in the world. I've got a team around me that are a delight and a joy to serve Jesus with. I'm covered up in committed followers of Christ. In fact, I would put the spiritual commitment of this church up next to just about anybody and say, man, God has filled this place as it's a crazy place to be a part of. Uh, it's, it's really fulfilled my life dream and joy to be able to share that. And God gave me a, a beautiful woman uh, with an gr- incredible heart, um, sons, daughters-in-law, grandkids. I mean, and it's all a gift. I didn't deserve any of it, and it's all better than I deserved. And if he was to take me out tomorrow, I'd have no complaints. I'm like, hey, it's a great life. That's why I genuinely feel. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not blowing smoke. I really feel that way. And, and honestly, the people in my world feel that way too. Uh, I lost our buddy Glenn two weeks ago today. He passed away. He started having these strokes and the doctor said, you're just going to keep having them. There's nothing we can do. And he lost his sight. And he finally said, I knew I was going to do this. I always forget the time I shoe. He finally said, look, I've had a great life. He literally said this. I was in the room. He said, I've had a great life. I've traveled. I've done what I wanted to do. I've been around people that I love. There's nothing that I didn't want to do. God has given me so much in my life. I'm ready to just go see Jesus. Just take me off the medicine. Let me go home. And, and they did that. And he passed away and no regrets. He doesn't live a life of quiet despair. And I don't really know anybody in my world that lives that way. I mean, I know we all get down from time to time, and I, I know we struggle from time to time, but, but to say that my whole life is marked by quiet despair, I just, I'm, I don't believe that, not for me. So the question then is, well, then why did Thoreau say it? And even more importantly, why is it so quotable? And, and I've got to come back and say, well, m- that must be the way a lot of people feel if the massive man, men leave lives of quiet desperation and everybody keeps quoting that, then maybe they're quoting that because it expresses how they really feel. And so what I realize is that without Jesus, that probably is the case, that despair becomes the mark of the life without Christ. Um, last week, I dragged you through 300 years of philosophical evolution. <laughs> I'm so sorry. But I needed you to see two things. First, these precepts we embrace came from flawed men. I think sometimes we don't get that because they seem so smart, and they are smart. But they're deeply flawed, and the lives that they have lived are often lives Thoreau described of misery. And yet... They're still with us, right? 
Um, and we still sort of have their ideas sort of lingering in the background. Gary Willis said this, uh, two contrary feelings therefore grow up in the academy. That's the academic institutions. That's the intellectuals. The sense of superior knowledge and the sense of ultimate powerlessness. A combination that makes for resentment. And resentment, according to Scheller and Camus, leads to intellectual asphyxiation. I love that word, that expression, intellectual asphyxiation. The constant rebreathing of one's own thoughts in a closed room. And uh, when you know the backstory of these guys, you realize that the ideas that they put forth are the ideas that are coming from broken people. And yet their ideas are with us today, permeating our culture like shards of broken glass in a wedding cake. And we're not even aware of it because we just become carried along by the consensus of culture, and consequently, we struggle with the same things that these flawed men struggled with. Secondly, most importantly, I want you to understand that this way of thinking leads to despair. Nobel Prize-winning physicist Steven Weinberg concluded, the more the universe seems comprehensible, the more it seems pointless. And that's exactly what Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. I told you, man, this is a tough book, but it's a real book, and it's a book that expresses the tension of the modern time better than anything I could imagine. Written 3,000 years ago, it's, it's, it's parroting the consensus of culture today. And he starts with this downbeat. He says in Ecclesiastes 1, uh, these are the words of the teacher, King, King David's son, who ruled in Jerusalem, so that's Solomon. Everything is meaningless, says the teacher, completely meaningless. What do people get for all their hard work under the sun? And you see the context here. He starts with the conclusion, meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, everything's vacuous, there is no real weight or substance to any of this. That's his conclusion. And then it begins, then he goes back to his question. What's the point? What advantage does man have in all the struggles and hardships and difficulties that he goes through in life? Why go through all that if it's meaningless? But notice the context, and this is the key to all of it. Under the sun, under the sun, on this ball, if this planet is all we have, then you cannot construct any significant long-term meaning and value from that. And so it really does lead to despair. Now, let me be clear about this. These, are, these insights are not what Solomon believes. He's not saying this is how it ought to be. He's saying this is what it looks like without God. Now, Solomon had experienced this. Solomon had fallen away from God. He had delved into all of the things that are supposed to give us meaning and value and significance in life. And he'd come back and said, from my experiment, it's all meaningless. It's all vacuous. And so then he wants to begin to sort of, in his introduction, prepare us for what's about to come. And so he really unpacks the concept of despair in verses 4 through 11. And, and it's, I got to tell you, it's depressing, but it's something we need to hear because it's the reality of the experience of people of our time. And I want to take you through it, but I want you to see the two sides of it. And so first I want us to look at the, the way the cycle of despair works. He kind of describes despair as if it were a cycle. 
And then the second, we'll get to the effects of this cycle on us and, and what we deal with personally as a result of it. So let's start with the first, the way of the cycle of despair. And there's a logical train of thought in his words. Look at it. First, life moves in cycles. That's basically what he says. A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place, it rises there again. Blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north, the wind continues swirling along. So you see the cyclical nature. And on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, yet the sea is not full to the place where the rivers flow. Uh, there they flow again. So we see this endless cycle. But rather than see, taking comfort in the predictability of the world, he sees it as something that leads to something desperate and monotonous which is that second thing, the cycle becomes monotonous. Look at what he says. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. I mean, it just seems to be after a while this repeated cycle. Now, this is, these are the musings of an old man. These aren't the young man full of uh, hope and vigor and, and uh, optimism. This is an old guy who's sort of been there, done that. Third, monotony turns to longing. The eye's not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. In other words, I'm never really satisfied. I'm never really full. I can't, everything, I can see it. There's always more that I could want, right? I mean, he's, you know, he sounds like to me that great theologian Mick Jagger. That's who he sounds like. You know the line? I can't get no satisfaction. That's what he's saying. And, and, and you see this monotony is creating a longing that which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, this, it is new. Already it's existed for ages, which were before us. Nothing seems to interest him anymore. It's just a cycle of despair. And then he concludes with this, finally nothing lasts. And there's a strange irony to the arrangement if you sort of pick it up. Do you feel the irony of it? He's just said nothing changes, right? We live in this endless cycle of the sun rises, the sun sets, the wind blows, the wind blows again, the rivers run, the ocean's never full. It's an interesting cycle that, that seems endless and monotonous. But then he comes back around and says, nothing lasts. Look at verse 11. There is no remembrance of earlier things and also the later things which will occur there will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. His point is that the world is enduring, but we aren't. We're transitory. We live, we die, we're forgotten. You, you feel the despair of that? I told you, this is dark stuff. Now, let me say this. When I talk about despair, I'm not talking about happiness. I'm not talking about unhappiness. You got that? Despair isn't about happiness or unhappiness. Despair is about hopelessness. You see, there are non-believers whose worldview is fixed to this planet who can find different ways to, you know, distract themselves into happiness and they, they can seek happiness in this thing and then chase happiness in that thing. And there's a temporary nature to the happiness that they discover. But though they can find some degree of happiness, they can never find hope. And because of that, they eventually come to the point of despair. And the truth is there are moments in believers' lives, our lives are, are filled with the hope of, of Christ, right? 
But there are times where we go through stuff and we're unhappy. And there are times where we go through stuff and we're hurting and we're anxious and all of the things that go with that. But we can't forget that no matter what we go through and no matter what our feelings are in that time, we never lose hope, right? And it's like Paul said, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that hope is in us. And that hope is what keeps us from despair, That's why Job said, though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. Like, I I may not always be happy, but I can always be hopeful, right? But that's not the case for those whose whose lives are chained to this planet, whose perspective is under the sun, right? So that's the cycle that he talks about. You've got this cycle that leads to monotony, monotony leads to longing, and then all of a sudden we're all forgotten. You live, you ride this ball around the sun a few times, and then you die. Now let's talk about the consequences of that. The consequences of the cycle of despair. First of all, despair makes you struggle with meaning. Without an eternal perspective, life is meaningless. What's the point? Go back to verse 8. All this monotony is tiresome. No one can bear to describe it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear ever content with hearing. There's no real progress, so who cares? And that phrase, who cares, really defines our time, doesn't it? In fact, this has become the who cares generation. Back in the 1970s, there was a guy named Bob Seger. He wrote a song called Night Moves. Anybody remember it? You guys old enough? And there's a line in Night Moves. Do you know the line? He's describing our generation. And the line goes like this. We were just young and restless and bored. That single line describes my generation. Young, restless, and bored. I do not think that that line describes this generation now. Because I think that screens have changed everything. Nobody's bored or restless anymore because the minute we feel a twinge of boredom in our lives, we pull out a screen and we divert ourselves and we, uh, 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 we've been anesthetized through the narcotic of technology and the screen. And I would say today's generation isn't young and restless and bored. It's young, sedated, and unmotivated. Because in order to keep from dealing with the meaninglessness, see, the prevailing worldview of the culture that I grew up in was a prevailing worldview of hope and hopefulness because it was still founded upon the things of Jesus. But that has radically shifted over the last 30, 40, 50 years. And so now the prevailing worldview is post-Christian, post-modern, and the, the prevailing worldview is this is all we've got. And so really life is meaningless. And so in order to deal with the meaninglessness of it, we entertain ourselves to death. And we do that through screens. Um, internet gameplay, interactive gameplay, social media, figuring out some new dance step on TikTok, you know, so that I can film it, so that I can try to go viral, so that I can try to find some meaning in the fact that I get enough likes to, for me to like myself, right? You think that's true, that the more likes we get, the more we like ourselves? But all of that's just an effort to deal with the meaninglessness because we're longing for meaning. Man is always in search of meaning. And then despair makes you long for purpose. I mean, if life is meaningless, then it's also purposeless, right? Where do I find purpose? What's the point? I mean, Rick Warren wrote this book. Have you all heard about it? Uh, It's kind of old now. It's about 20 years old, but it was called The Purpose Driven Life. Here's what's interesting about it. That book 
has now been translated into 85 languages, and he has sold more than 50 million copies. It spent three months on the New York Times bestseller when it first came out. 90 weeks. That's more than three months. 90 weeks. That's two years on the New York Times bestseller list. And and so you back up and you go, well, who's reading it? Christians are reading it, but so are the non-Christians. David Mack and I were in uh, L.A. during that time, and uh, we went up to Hollywood to see what what Hollywood was, you know, because you always hear about it. Look, massive disappointment, okay? (laughs) If you go to L.A., don't bother. Well, unless if you're from Hollywood, I apologize. But uh, not what you expect. Not very glittery or glamorous. And so we're having lunch, and uh, our waiter's one of these guys, for real. He's one of these guys. He's like wanting to break into the movie scene. A really attractive young man, very fit, very articulate. And uh, so he's waiting tables to sort of make ends meet until his big break. And so we're talking back and forth. He's like, what are y'all doing here? We're we're pastors. We're going to a Rick Warren conference down in uh, Orange County and and he's like, Rick Warren, Rick Warren, I've heard that name. We're, we're like, yeah, he wrote a book called Personal. He's like, I got that book. I got that book. It's on my nightstand. I'm reading it. I'm like, oh, yeah, you may be reading some of it. But, you know, the funny thing is that even the non-believers were, were hungry for that book. Why? Why would you sell 50 million copies of a book about purpose? What does that tell you about purpose? It tells you there are a lot of people that want to find it. Everybody needs a purpose, and sadly, without Jesus, you just can't. He said, what exists now is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. Verse 9, there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything about which one someone could say, look at this, it's, it's new. It was already done long ago before our time. Now, I think you have to be careful interpreting this literally, because what the, this is the hyperbole of a cynic. He's saying, there's nothing new. And, and you read that and you go, well, that's not, eh, that's not exactly true. There's some new stuff. I mean, I, ju- I just went to the uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Museum when we went up to Vermont to see our son and coming back down. I'm an airplane guy, okay? My dad was in the Air Force. Growing up, there was an Air Force base in my town, Parent Air Force Base. All my friends, kind of military kids, and and so we were all about airplanes. We built airplanes, and and so I thought everybody was an airplane guy. And then I took my wife and and some friends to uh, the Smithsonian, and turns out they're not, you know. So, but I am. So we're coming back, and I'm like, okay, Amy. Can I go? Can I go? She's like, yeah, let's go. So, and she was super gracious about it because it's like. She's just trying to be interested. And I'm like, do you see that airplane? You see that airplane? You see that airplane? And, and what's interesting about this museum at Wright-Patterson Field is it starts at the very beginning. You walk in, you turn right, there's the Wright Flyer, you know, first airplane. That's not the first one. It's one a couple of years later. It was a military production. Looked exactly like the first one. And, you know, the Wright Brothers airplane right there. And then you go around the corner, you're in World War I. And I didn't really realize it, and it really helps you to understand the, the, the compression of time. But within 14 years of those two guys taking the first flight, which was basically trying to make some circles around an open field, you got the Sopwith Camel, you got the Red Baron's airplane, and, and you suddenly realize within 14 years, these guys are flying 100 and 150 miles an hour, zooming around, turning, shooting at each other, flying crazy. 
Then you turn another corner, you're in World War II, you know? And there's a P-40 Warhawk. Go Warhawks. Do we need to talk? <laughs> that was a great game yesterday. I'm just saying. I don't normally talk about football. And, and, then, and then I see uh, in, by 45, which is what, 26 years after the end of World War I, the Germans had a jet airplane. I mean, I'm compressing time here. You've gone from the Wright brothers to the Red Baron in 14 years. You've gone from the Red Baron to jet airplanes in 26 years. And then 24 years after that, just 24 years after the first jet airplane, there's a man standing on the moon. Did y'all know that? Did you know that from, from Orville and Wilbur Wright at Kitty Hawk flying the first airplane, 66 years later, just 66 years later, Neil Armstrong is putting footprints in lunar soil. So don't tell me there's nothing new, Solomon. There's a lot that's new, like space flight and air flight and cell phones and television and all kinds of gadgetries and whizmo and all of that stuff. But look, he's not talking about human achievement. He knew about all that. He's talking about life. He's saying life doesn't change. We all think because we've got all this technology, we're that much more sophisticated, but we're struggling with the same junk he struggled with 3,000 years ago. We're born on this ball, we ride the ball, we die on the ball, and if this ball is all there is, then what's the point? There's no purpose under the sun. That's what he's saying. Let me introduce you to a word. It's called nihilism. Have you ever heard that? It's the Latin word for nothing. And nihilism is the rejection of all religious and moral principles, and it holds that life is meaningless. Sort of the, the, the poster child for nihilism is Frederick Nietzsche. Remember, I, I uh, mentioned him last time, Nietzsche. Um, he's the one that said God is dead and then spent the remainder of his life in an insane asylum. That's Nietzsche. And Nietzsche basically rejected all morality, all ethics. He said that man is essentially driven by the will to power. The Nazis took Nietzsche's philosophy and they applied it to the National Socialism, which was sad and ironic because Nietzsche didn't like uh, nationalism and he was rabidly anti, or he hated anti-Semitism. But they took it, they applied his and, and all of that, and, and consequently, that's how they sort of supported everything they did uh, from that. And I told you last time, Nietzsche's making a comeback. You're like, what? Why? Why would Nietzsche make a comeback? Because nihilism is the only reasonable solution to atheistic, secularistic, naturalistic, humanistic worldviews. And so postmodernism is essentially a, a worldview that's based upon or ultimately concludes in nihilism. And that's why I tell you about that word because that's really what's driving it. This means life is meaningless, then believe nothing, value nothing, hope for nothing. And then despair makes you search for significance. No one remembers the former events, nor will anyone remember the events that are yet to happen. They will not be remembered by the future generations. And I'm like, wait, that's not completely true. I mean, some people are remembered. I think it's ironic. Solomon said, nobody's going to remember anybody. And we remember Solomon. 
you know? Uh, historians and genealogists remember people. I did genealogy for my family, you know, and went all the way back to the first guy that came to America. His name was Lawrence Deitz. I was looking for, you know, maybe some tie to George Washington or Albert Einstein or something, but uh, all I could do was tie us to Lawrence Deitz, who was uh, the first man kicked out of New Amsterdam for trying to sell his wife. So, eh, not great, you know? <laughs> And I think things kind of degenerated after that. But I, do I really know him? I mean, I know his birth date and his death date. I, I don't really know, apart from the fact that he sold his wife, got his ear cut off and got banished from, uh, from, from uh, New Amsterdam. The truth is, uh, we won't really be remembered. Blake Shelby gave a talk at the Sportsman's Banquet. It's a great talk. He led off by talking about his trophies. He didn't brag enough, I thought. I said, Blake, you need to brag more because these are hunters. And, you know, Blake grew up in the hunting and fishing world. His dad was the director of marketing for Ranger Bass. But some of you guys used to read Bass Magazine, you know. And at the back of every Bass Magazine, there was a little cartoon called Harry and Charlie. I brought one to show you. Here's, a, here's the cart. That's a typical cartoon. Loosen the drag just a tad. Notice that name at the bottom, Shelby. Blake's dad drew those cartoons. So if you guys were ever bass guys, which I wasn't, you, you would know that. Um, director of marketing for Mossy Oak, uh, publisher of Peterson Hunting Magazine. He ran PSE Bows, was on the Outdoor Channel filming. He's got a picture in his office of him and Dale Earnhardt hunting together. He's got a Dale Earnhardt signed rifle. This is Blake. Um, He's got Hank Parker on speed dial on his phone. Uh, one time there was a bomb threat called into a shot show and he spent three hours in a pickup truck with Ted Nugent. You need to ask him about that. <laughs> Blake said, you know, I got to hunt in a lot of places, and I basically got to kill anything I wanted to kill. I've hunted about everything you want to hunt. He said, let me show you my trophies. And to a bunch of hunters, they're... They want to see trophies, right? And he put up on the screen a picture of his wife and daughters. He said, these are my trophies. Then he put on a picture of his friends and his friends' kids. He said, these are my trophies. And he really brought it home. But the thing that he said that was so powerful, he said this. When you die, they're going to back a truck up to your house and take all your trophies and throw them in the dumpster. Nobody wants your trophies. Solomon said it like this, the world spins, the wind blows, the rivers flow, nothing lasts, life never changes. We are born, we live, we die, we are forgotten. That's life under the sun, and that's the sad cycle of despair. It's hopeless. And if this world is all there is, then that's all you get. But this world is not all there is. Here's the biblical worldview. You ready? Let me wrap this up. Here's the biblical worldview. You are significant. Why? Because you were created in His image. Your life matters. God loves you and He's got a plan for your life. Don't think for a second that what you do on this earth doesn't matter. In fact, everything you do on this earth is preparation for eternity. You matter and what you do matters. And you have a purpose. And your purpose is, first of all, to look like Jesus. Everybody that comes to faith in Christ Jesus, God begins to set out on a plan. And that plan is to conform you to the image of His Son. 
He wants you to look like Jesus, and he wants you to share Jesus with everybody you come into contact with. That's your purpose. I don't care what you do to make money. Your purpose is to reveal Christ to this generation, and you are eternal. That's what the world doesn't get. We are eternal. Just because you can't see, feel, and touch it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist. How do I know? Look at this, Ecclesiastes 3, verse 11. Yet God has made everything beautiful for its own time. He has planted eternity in the human heart. Underline that part. He has planted eternity in the human heart. But even so, people cannot see the whole scope of God's work from beginning to end. That's why people don't believe in it because they can't see it. Look, guys, he's too big to fit between your ears. There's a part of God we can see. The only part of God we see is what has been revealed. And he reveals to us what he wants us to know about himself. But there's a whole nother part of him that's hidden. Bard called it the deus abscondus. It's the hidden part of God. He's never going to reveal that until we see him face to face. But he's revealed to us all that we need for life and godliness. He's revealed to us all that we need. And he's put eternity in our hearts. Let me ask you something. Why would we long for a place that doesn't exist? And yet you go anywhere in the world and you look at the culture, no matter how primitive, no matter how sophisticated, and at some point in there, they're longing for eternity and they're longing for God and they're trying to figure out a way to connect with Him because it's in our inherited spirit that we are born with. Uh, Paul said it in Romans chapter 1. It's put inside of us. And that's why, because there's so much more, Jesus said, look, Don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And where I go, I'm going to receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And it's that knowledge of eternity that God has written in our hearts that gives us hope of knowing it's Christ in me, the hope of glory. That's why Paul said in prison, He said, in the future, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, and not only for me, but for all who've loved my appearing. And that changes everything, doesn't it? That doesn't mean that I'm always going to be happy. It doesn't mean that life's always going to go my way. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to go through serious heartache and, and longing and at times even despair. But my despairing isn't lingering. It's not permanent because no matter what happens to me, I still have hope. I read Swindoll's feed this morning. He said this, two great truths. Number one, nothing touches me that has not passed through the hands of my heavenly father. And two, everything I endure is designed to prepare me for serving others more effectively. That's why Job said, though he slay me, yet I'll hope in him. And I want to remind you believers of that because you may be in a tough place right now. And you may be at the point of despair. Look, it's, it's one thing to be depressed and it's another thing to be anxious. But you, can, you don't have to despair because there's always hope. No matter what you go through, it's already passed through the hands of our loving Father and it's preparing us for something more. And you've got eternity in your heart. But I want to say this for the non-believer. You tired of living with despair? Let me tell you something, brother. That's all you got to look forward to. Without Jesus, the mass of men lead lives of quiet desperation. 
And that may be your life right now. Your life is marked by despair. You try to find significance in something else. We're going to see this with Solomon. He tried drugs, women, material possessions, knowledge. He tried all that stuff. He came back around and said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And it is. The only thing that's going to give you hope, and hope is the answer to despair, the only thing that's going to give you hope is Jesus Christ. And if you've never given your heart to Jesus, that's where you start today. You say, I'm not sure how to do that. By faith, you're saved. By grace, you're saved through faith. When you give your life to Christ and you just say, by faith, I'm trusting in Jesus, your life changes forever. And you move from, a, from a, a being chained to this ball to having eternity in your heart. God wants to do that in your life right now. Would you just pray with me? Just every head bowed and every eye closed as we go before the Father. As a believer, you're struggling with some some hurts and heartaches and depression. Why don't you just say to the Father, God, help me to see my life in the perspective of the hope that's in me and not focus so much on the hurt that's happening. Father, help us to realize that you're in control of every phase of our life and that you've already got eternity prepared for us. And so I pray for my brother and sister that's really wrestling right now. And sometimes the mentality of this world can become our mentality because it's hard to think biblically when we're immersed in a culture that thinks naturally. So help them to remember who you are and what you've done. And Father, I pray for those that need Jesus this morning who live with a constancy of despair. Help them to realize that you've already broken the power of that. That you've given us hope. And that we don't have to live as if this is all there is. So Father, in this moment that they would just say yes to Jesus, turn their heart fully over to you. Just best they know how, God, I just admit my sin. I believe you by faith. Change my life forever. Father, we thank you that salvation comes through Jesus Christ with hope. Romans 5, Romans 15, 13, I pray that God, the source of our hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Let that be done here in this moment. In Jesus' name, amen. Blake's going to lead us. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.